Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to welcome Ben Rogoff back to the podcast. Ben manages Polar Capital Global Technology Trust, as well as two of the firm's open-ended technology funds. This is a particularly special one for me because Ben is the first person I ever interviewed on the podcast almost two years ago, so it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Well, you've been in the industry for 26 years, through the dot-com boom and bust and the financial crisis of 2008. However, the vast majority of your time managing the trust recently has been through the boom years of tech and loose monetary policy and low interest rates. Now the tide has turned, the trust's share price has fallen by a third since the start of the year. I wondered how the past six months have been for you and has, has, has it affected your philosophy? Well, I mean, certainly the market has been challenging. Uh, you know, I think ever really since the the Fed pivot, as 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 it's known, the sort of um, the shift in policy out of the Fed in November of late last year, the um, I the acknowledgement that what we were well, what they were experiencing, what we're all experiencing on a day to day basis in terms of inflation, wasn't proving quite as transitory as they had hoped. And since then, there's been obviously a a big risk off episode. And, you know, bad for markets, bad for well, all all forms of equities, but obviously the 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 greatest. Uh, uh, challenge really to growth stocks and the longer duration assets um, that do tend to fare less well in a you know rising rate sort of high, higher risk environment. So um, yes, like you said, I've worked through you know ups and downs before. Um, thankfully, the tech sector has had more ups and downs, um, but when it has downs, they can be you know quite quite painful and um, and uh, you know each each one has been different. And I think that's the the interesting part about uh, the job. One of the interesting facets of the job is, and one of the reasons I was drawn to this industry was that you know, on the surface, every day is the same, but actually they're all very different. And 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 so you know, this this environment, this risk off episode, is quite different to the ones we've seen before, where that they may have been related to you know financial crisis. We've had a pandemic, uh, and we've had uh, we've had the dot com bubble at the very beginning of my career. This one is really about inflation and the loss of central bank. You know, the Fed put. And I think that that is a, a very different feature to this current sell-off. Now, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but when do you think the sell-off will be over? Do you think this is a changing of the guard where value outperforms growth for the next five years? Or do you think that stocks have fallen a lot, a lot of leverage has come out and maybe now it's time to get back into tech? You're right that I don't have a crystal ball, uh, and and for a very long time actually, having having started in, the, in this industry in the late nineties, um, I read somewhere along the way that the best fund managers, good fund managers, uh, are also risk managers, and I think that's something that we don't we don't talk about very much as an industry. But the idea that um, you know we're we're ultimately stewards of other people's capital. I have my own money in the trust, of course, but I also look after an awful lot of money on behalf of other people. And so trying to find, you know, call, calling bottoms and is this the right time to buy is really just part of a conversation about risk reward. Um, has the risk reward improved? Definitely. You know, last year we were looking at um, some really exciting assets that were trading at valuations that we hadn't really seen since those sort of heady days of the late 90s. Um, and, and we also called out multiple times in fact sheets and other um, commentary to investors, you know, our discomfort with facets of the market, you know, things like SPACs, um, special purpose acquisition vehicles that you know, people were using as a way to get to the market differently. We were slightly nervous about some of the ultra long duration investing that we have seen in, in parts of the market. We were nervous about the sort of fashion towards concentration in portfolios. And again, this isn't being wise after the event. These are things that we were nervous about last year. 
Um, so since then, uh, there's been the most remarkable uh, derating of some of those assets, um, some justified, of course, uh, and some less justified, in our opinion. So we are definitely beginning to um, dip our toe or investment toes back in the water. We've been reducing some of the uh, exposure in the portfolio to more stalwart, you know, steadier names uh, and trying to take advantage of the, uh, the, the sale in, in some of those next generation uh, high growth assets. Mm, be greedy when others are fearful. On a scale of 1 to 10, how bullish are you feeling about your opportunity set now? It's a great question. Uh, and I, I guess I should give you a simple answer, but um, I would say I'm somewhere between 7 and 8. Um, you know, I think when we look at the valuations on offer, uh, when you look at um, you know, what's happened with valuations and how not just how fast the derating process has occurred, but also how detached, at least for now, it's been to fundamentals. Now, again, companies are sort of coincident indicators, aren't they? In the end, when things turn down in the economy, companies don't see it first, they see it as it happens. Um, and so I don't want to be um, too, I don't, want to, I don't want a bull case to be too reliant on what companies are seeing, but we have colleagues right now in the States at conferences. And, and the overwhelming sense from those companies is that things are still okay. Um, obviously, there's weakness in Europe. There's been you know, tragic events in, in Ukraine. Uh, there's high oil prices that are beginning to have an impact. And you can see that already, and of course, on the consumer facing some of the internet companies, e-commerce companies, payment companies are already seeing that, that consumer weakness. Outside of that, you know, the, the imperative to digitally transform, you know, the, the, the use of AI to fundamentally change business processes and, and, uh, and, and hopefully the world. Um, you know, I just don't think those things get turned off and on as fast as stock markets um, discount them. And, and so heartened by that, um, the, the challenge, of course, is that not that many people in markets have worked in an, a more inflationary environment. If we are in a different you know, investment backdrop or we're operating as a different investment backdrop, mm -hmm. i.e. one where inflation um, remains elevated, then I think it's going to take some time for us. The, the price discovery process that we're currently in across all asset classes, um, I think, can play out for longer. I, I remain actually relatively hopeful about that. I think the Fed last night in the minutes that they released talked about um, actually lower expectations for PCE going forward. And I, I feel like, um, you know, higher interest rates uh, and perhaps a, a shallow recession or just weaker growth for a while can take some of the sting out of the inflation uh, yeah. situation. So what areas specifically, sectors, maybe companies, are you adding to? Well, we've been reducing areas with that consumer exposure. I think, again, for a long-term investor, there are probably some tremendous opportunities here. And again, we are long-term investors, but we have our e-commerce exposure via companies like Amazon, which is you know fairly common garden, but a brilliant business with also, of course, the, the, a cloud story there that we think accounts for you know more than half of the overall valuation of the business today. Discuss. Um, so we've been reducing some of those consumer-facing businesses because near term, this is a very difficult period for, for consumption for consumers, uh, particularly inflation at what, 40-year 40, 40 highs and energy prices and just had to pick up the newspaper to, to see how palpable that, that, that the challenge is to, to con consumers. Of course, those consumers, or certainly many in, in the US, um, have, have strong balance sheets. So there may be an opportunity here for, in some of those names too. But I think for now, we're, we're happier sort of dipping back into companies where there's a strong secular story. I mean, in the end, we're growth investors. So we're attracted to secular growth stories. Um, and, and companies that are on sale um, that have, you know, these long-term um, tailwinds associated with digital transformation, but also things like uh, payments, um, AI. And so we had a very limited exposure, for example, to fintech, which was a very hot area over the last two years. The pandemic has seen a you know, huge um, 
acceleration of, of, of adoption of some of the sort of the new technologies uh, involved in payments and elsewhere. And then those stocks have been very hard hit as e-commerce has slowed down. So even though we're not adding to our e-commerce exposure, we have begun to add back selectively to some fintech names. We've also added um, quite meaningfully to software stocks, where earlier this year, private equity was beginning to step in and buy assets at um, you know, much reduced prices relative to where they might have stood a year earlier. And since then, I mean, just year to date, you know, the, the average software stock has fallen to levels that are, are almost half where a, a very high quality company like Toma Bravo in, in PE we're buying stocks earlier this year, so we've been we've been tipping our toes back in there. So really, it's about software, uh, it's about AI, uh, and at the edges, things like fintech, where the pullbacks have been very very significant indeed. Which, which fintech companies specifically? Sure. Uh, again, small, small starter positions in names that uh, we've watched and been participants in previously. So, for example, in the UK, we've added back very modestly to Wise um, after a very precipitous decline in the share price that frankly, looks mostly divorced, actually, from what the company has achieved. Um, and that, you know, stock markets, you know, as I said before, wax and wane very differently to, to, to fundamentals. Um, but again, a small starter position there. We've added um, we've added to Visa and MasterCard, which again, you know, listeners will know very well, but those companies feel like, and so far, have proven to be pretty good hedges on, you know, inflation. Um, in the end, um, they, they get to see also not just the the good side of the consumption equation, but also the services side. If uh, people aren't in Walmart, let's say, or they're, they're struggling to spend as much on, on Amazon, um, they may well be doing just fine at British Airways and, and, and elsewhere where there's you know rampant price inflation in certain sort of services and, and travel categories. So Visa, MasterCard, uh, we have uh, also exposure to uh, Block, formerly known as Square, um, which uh, is, again, a sort of mid-sized position for us. Uh, stock has been very hard hit um, associated with a lot of the stuff we've talked about already, recession risk and, and other stuff. And then a very small position in Bill.com, which is a software company, but um, very much exposed to the financial side of, of, of the company experience. Great, thanks. It's interesting because last time we spoke, I asked you what a technology company is and how you define it. And we talked about how that was involving. And one of the things you said was that... Um, Buying a company involved in insurance because they're using AI to identify risks, that, that wouldn't count for you. And then I was looking through your holdings. This one upstart, mm. I think it's a fintech. I wondered if that is sort of a lending business dressed up as a tech company. Well, th- they would say no. Um, that's not a stock that we own right now, actually, if I'm honest. We, we oh, did, sorry. We did, no, it's no, fine. It, 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 was a, it was a former holding, and the question is still yeah. very, very valid. I think the, um, you know, the idea there was that they were using AI to identify interesting loan opportunities that they could then uh, package up for for others to ultimately uh, to ultimately um, lend to but I interestingly enough the question's very pertinent because in the last quarter the company actually ended up using its own balance sheet a bit more to um, take on some of that loan book itself and so I think that's a really interesting point which is that on paper at least uh, and, in, and in principle, these are companies, these are tech companies. But I think that uh, when when the market and market conditions, particularly in some of these um, sort of niche financial areas, have got much trickier, um, then when a company like Upstart does start to take loans onto its own balance sheet, then that starts to challenge the question of whether or not that's a tech company or is it actually a lender. Mm. And so I think the most important lesson out of this is, apart from, you know, I think, is to ultimately trade carefully. And as a tech investor, you know, I think we've got we've got an awful lot of you know good things on our in our corner. You know, we the world is being transformed again. Markets say otherwise near term, but 
you know, you just feel it, you see it. Uh, our, our industry, things like AI, but also data just generally, uh, it just gives a, an unfair advantage, we believe, to technology companies to transform other industries. However, oh, and I should say that, you know, in the trust and the other funds that we manage, we, we tackle this exciting, but, you know, let's just leave it there, exciting industry with multiple themes. In other words, you know, we try to build um, some robustness into the portfolio to deal with the fact that one minute, you know, e-commerce is, a, is an incredible beneficiary of the pandemic. And then in a, in a reopening scenario, people are in shops again or they're in the, doing other stuff. And, and so have six to eight core themes in your portfolio and then at the periphery look to sort of move uh, the, you know, the, the goalposts towards where tech is expanding into, but to do it with you know, not full foul of hubris. And so fintech is a great example of an area that we absolutely want to do more in, but we will tread carefully. And I and I, I always I, I I kind of sometimes use you know euphemisms or whatever that I, you know, maybe they're not investment, but ultimately we want to do battle on high ground. And I think when we are when we analyze core tech companies, when we look at AMD for example in the chip making uh, world, you know we feel that we know as much about that company as any investor. Um, and again. Who knows if that's true, but that's certainly how we feel. Ultimately, as an investor, you want to do battle on high ground. When we move into areas that are more peripheral to us, even with a team of nine dedicated people, not working for other teams that we talk to in the kitchen, but actually people that work for me and my partner, Nick Evans, then then we still we want to do battle on high ground. And so that necessitates a uh, careful, a careful redefinition of what is and what isn't tech. Not, not in a... Um, in a metaphorical sense, but in an investment sense. But again, as stewards of capital, we need to feel comfortable that we understand the industry dynamics. And in the case of fintech, it's a great example of um, where actually companies, we've also been exposed to, for example, a company like Affirm, which is in the buy now, pay later space. Again, very much a tech company in our opinion, but in certain credit environments, that company may or may not be able to access capital. We don't have those challenges when we invest in software companies. These are traditional asset light technology companies that we understand. We've seen hundreds of those type of companies before. We believe we can recognize the best ones and avoid some of the worst ones. But when you start to make forays into newer areas like fintech, we, we go in very much with a jaundiced approach. We, we believe that early stage investing should ultimately be left to companies that do pre-public investment. Uh, early stage investment in public equity markets often ends in tears. Yeah. Because we, spe- I, I was going to say, I, I feel like a lot of fintech is in the private markets, um, and we spoke about that last time. And you said that you didn't want to go into private markets because of liquidity problems, and you might be grateful for that call at the moment. It, I mean, it wasn't a new call. I think we've been consistent across yeah. the you know, time that I've managed money, and ultimately, um, what did I read something recently that you know, crises are caused when not not when risky assets are repriced lower. It's when perceived safe assets are repriced as risky ones and i've seen that episode that that idea play out multiple times across my my long-ish career um through the 90s of course um but but also you know and and structures in the 90s that people um were, myself included were involved with that turned out to be riskier than than had hoped or or you know through financial crises or but ultimately i've ended up in a place my colleague nick uh, feels exactly the same which is that ultimately um you want to have a portfolio that is highly liquid because in the end change occurs within tech at a very abnormal you know at a very abnormal rate and and so there's really nothing worse in the world i think as as a manager at least um it's plenty worse in the real world of course than being able to not not being able to change one's mind about a stock 
and and that of course is you know because you have too much or because the stock is illiquid um, and, and we just a long time ago made you know again probably both of us independently but 20 odd years ago i think enough experience of um, unwinds to know that you just don't want to be in anything you can't exit so even though i run a trust even though we can invest in private companies, even though we don't suffer from the sort of day-to-day liquidity challenges that, you know, open-ended funds um, benefit and, and, and ultimately you know, f- experience on the way down, um, we still felt that that was, you know, not for us. And so, yes, during this long upcycle and lots of excitement associated with areas like fintech, you know, and there's some very good managers out there, so this is not a critique of them, but I think it's just critical that you know what you own. Mm. Uh, and for us, PCT, Public Cap Tech Trust, is all about listed stocks, with exposures to you know some of the best themes, but in a diversified way, and a portfolio that's constructed with a benchmark in mind. And so again, one of the other challenges that I've had over the years has been you know you own an awful lot of Apple, you own an awful lot of Google, or now Alphabet uh, and Microsoft. And for some, those companies were you know not that interesting, particularly when there's sort of new sparkly things coming to market every every five minutes with much more uh, exciting on the face of it you know growth rates. Um, it's those stocks that have formed, you know, p- protected us and our investors from some of the worst of these drawdowns. Because not long ago, you know, I think you know half of the Nasdaq was down more than fifty percent. So you know, we, we've certainly not experienced that type of drawdown in those bigger names. What's the portfolio turnover? Name or or value? I mean, as in as in the percentage turnover of the of the the portfolio itself, that a traditional one would be somewhere between around a hundred percent a year. We've been running okay. below that um, more recently, but through a cycle, I would say roughly a hundred percent. And and of course, that um, it's like a swan like number because the stuff above the above the you know the swan famously is uh, you know looks placid above the water and is frantically paddling away beneath <laughs> the water. And I think when you think about our turnover, it's not that dissimilar. Right? Uh, frantic's not the term I would use. but you know, The share price had... isn't the swan's head, though, is it? Well, I mean, markets ebb and flow, and, you know, I yeah. can't give people advice on on that, I'm, I'm afraid. And, you know, the share price also encount, you know, it, it, um, includes the, the widening of discounts that we've seen across the trust space. Um, again, you know, not being uh, flippant about that, but just discounts have expanded everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, again, look at my peer group. Uh, they they also are feeling similar. So the the share price drawdown is, you know, quite a bit more than the NAV yeah. drawdown yeah. that we, we've experienced through the cycle. You know, discounts again have ebbed and flowed. Um, but again, I I can't give forward guidance about about the the the, the discount. But I think it was it seemed fair to bring it up at this point that the NAV. You know, drawdown hasn't been quite as pronounced as the share price has. That is fair. You've been buying back shares? Yeah, uh, we have been buying back shares. We've been pretty active. Um, again, the portfolio is highly liquid. The NAV on the screen is the NAV. Um, there's no question yeah. about what the right price of our book is. And, you know, we're. Because I was thinking about that. For the, for the funds that do have unquoted companies, it, it, they tend to not be written down as much, but maybe it makes buying back shares harder if. The value of those companies might actually be worth less than what they're quoted at. Sorry, that's no, it's, tangential. It's, it's, though, it's, but... it's, it's sort of tangential, but I think it's 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 true. Um, I think you know, again, I've not had exposure to private companies, but I'm sure that all those companies that do have got you know very well understood processes associated with you know valuing them. Um, and, and you know, look, there, there are some puts and takes here. Uh, uh, when you have privates in a portfolio and they haven't been priced to yesterday's 
price, then you, you the investor, has to have a sort of an estimate of where you believe that fair value is. Um, I guess on a, if you would take a long enough time frame, and this would be the argument that investors in those companies would make, is it, it sort of doesn't matter. You know, markets ebb and flow, and today the price of Snowflake is X, but tomorrow it could be 30% higher or 30% lower. And actually, if you're a medium-term investor, then actually being in private companies that aren't suffering those kind of slightly crazy gyrations um, in what something is worth based based on the last 90 days of that company's performance um, is, you know, is also probably not not that wrong. But for me, you know, that's particularly, you know, I came to Polar at the beginning, or sorry, well, at the end, really, of the dot-com uh, bubble bursting. I think it was really impressed upon me just how ultimately performance Long-term performance was an accumulation of medium-term performance, which was himself, you know, a, a function of how you were doing on a day-to-day basis. And I, we do think like that. And, um, and, and the beauty of having a liquid portfolio is that if today stock X is down ten, uh, and there's a position in your portfolio that you don't like quite as much and is held up better, that we, we're able to move from from asset A to asset B and to do so painlessly. So. That that's for me the beauty of, of where we are. We're in the market buying the stock back because you know we the the, the policy has always been to um, to try to better match demand and supply for the shares. Uh, it's obviously accretive for shareholders for us to be in the market buying back shares, and we're at a what has been a fairly unusual discount. We've been further out, just to be clear. I mean, the financial crisis, we were out at 28 very briefly. Is it about 12 at the moment? Uh, 12, 13, yeah. along, along those lines. Um, and, and again, I commensurate with what we're seeing in, in sort of peer peer valuations uh, and also across the, not all, but large parts of the overall investment trust market. We've spoken a lot about valuations. In terms of the actual holdings, um, what can you tell us about valuation levels? Well, I mean, I... I can tell you they've come back. <laughs> can you tell so, uh, what I mean, they are? And, and maybe across some of your key themes that you like. I yeah, I'll try and put some colour on, on, yeah. on it. And maybe if I can, we could do it in reference to that sort of late 90s Com- period. Because I think... Compared I think, with history, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Because I, it's very tempting to, you know, ultimately the truth is sort of one thing. And then there's the narrative around the truth. And it's probably true in life as well as in investments. And, and, uh, and you know, a year ago or 18 months ago, uh, perhaps, you know, the narrative was ahead of itself. And perhaps today, we're, you know, back to trend or perhaps even overshooting, you know, the idea that e-commerce isn't going to take, you know, share from retail sales again ever is, is I just think, patently wrong, for example, or the idea that fintech isn't going to happen. I mean, you just have to look at Gen Z you know, young, younger people and the idea of them interfacing with a bank at the end of the street just seems completely bonkers. Um, and, and so there's, I don't think there's any real question about the, the, the long-term, medium, you know, medium to long-term trends here. Um, in the 90s, obviously, there was a similar spirit, wasn't there, that um, .com and Y2K and uh, lots of deregulation that happened at that time. And it kind of the confluence of those factors pushed us to levels like, I think, tech stocks trade on about 60 times forward earnings in the S&P, just at the point when, of course, earnings were peaking and you know, then, then were likely to fall. And the industry at, at that time was very heavily CapEx and you know, capital spending related. So it was companies buying servers or PCs. Uh, it was very much um, you know, the internet 
at that time was a PC network, which is, you know, incredible. It's really only older folk like myself that, you know, still use the PC to do stuff. Uh, you look at youngsters uh, and, uh, and it's all obviously mobile first, you know, e-commerce and, uh, and that's where the action is. So, you know, we're now, we've gone from hundreds of millions of unit market in PCs to billions of smartphones. And that's transformed, of course, the internet and how pervasive it is. So at that time, it got to about 60 times. And when I look at them, the numbers today, at the end of April, the S&P technology sector trades on 21 times. Sorry, that's price earnings. Price to earnings, uh, forward. Is so that, again, your preferred? It's one, it's, it's the right way to think about aggregates. You know, if you're going to look at the whole of the tech sector, then, then why wouldn't you look at price to earnings as a ratio? Again, if you're going to look at um, very long duration assets, then of course you can't do that because there are no earnings and many of those companies are planning on not making any money for the foreseeable future. That's not where we invest, just to be clear. But uh, we, we're, we're sort of somewhere in the middle. We have, you know, again, it's almost like a, no, a normal curve of, of, of companies. Some of them are, you know, almost none of them are slow growth. Um, certainly none of them are value stocks. Um, we don't do value. We don't believe in investing in companies where terminal growth rates are negative. It just There's no mean reversion in tech. There may be mean reversion in stock markets. People want to sell growth and buy value, and that's their prerogative. And so far, that's been the right call against this sort of different investment backdrop. But within tech, um, when you fall into the shadows, it's very hard to come back out uh, for lots of reasons that we probably don't have time to, to talk to. So we don't do value. We 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 are less interested in slower growth kind of compound assets. They're good businesses, um, but we're much more excited about companies and themes that are entering into the sort of adoption sweet spot where the forward PE or cash flow multiple more likely um, looks expensive, but where the business we hope is about to inflect. So we, mm-hmm. we position the trust and the other funds that we manage in that area. We don't do the hyper growth stuff often. Now, weird enough, during periods like this, and where markets are, you know, are in some uh, having a challenging period, and everything's for sale, where cross correlations go to one. Of course, it gives you a wonderful opportunity to to sort of dip your toe into stocks that, you know, Snowflake is a company that's relevant because they just reported earnings. The stock looks weak today, and again, I don't know when this podcast goes out, but um, that was a company that was trading late last year at forty-five times sales. So too rich for our blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we had any exposure during its ascent, it would have been tiny. And now the stock is trading on a, the same forward sales metric of about 12 times or 11 times. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of commensurate with where private equity was buying stuff earlier this year. So so that's interesting. So, But uh, but but just to go back to the overall picture, mm-hmm. you know, I think price earnings is, is the right way to think about um, the tech sector. And yes, it's a third of where the forward PE is a third of where it stood um, at the time of the of the dot com bubble, and the industry feels in, inherently completely different in that you know much of the software industry, for example, today is a rental model. You know, much of the infrastructure that's being used today is a rental model via the cloud, and many of the themes that we're excited about still feel like they're in the sort of the, the thick of the adoption sweet spot. You know, so cloud penetration, for example, sort of in the twenties. When you think about the cloud software industry as a share of the IT stack, probably still in the teens to low twenties. So, um, and 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 if you went back to that dot com period, and again, I, I try not to, uh, to 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 remember that period myself. But you know, again, many most of the companies that came public ultimately went to zero. Uh, now there may be companies that have come to public come, come public in the last two years that were that may you know we'll look back and say they were pandemic beneficiaries and, and nothing more. Um, but but the, again, the main part of the market cap of tech are in, I believe, you know, maturer. You know, if you look at the IPO market in the last two years, the average age of a company coming public was twice 
the age of a company that came public in the late 90s. Mm. So, again, some of the hype, similar, some of the pull forward, some of the characteristics of the last two years may be shared with the late 90s, but ultimately the, the aggregate position is very different. And in terms of our own portfolio, I should have just shared a couple more details, shouldn't I? You know, internet stocks are trading in sort of very low teens EV EBITDA multiples. That's the low end of where they've traded over the last, I don't know, 10 years. So again, lots of concern about what the forward numbers are because of where we are in, you know, recession fears, reopening, and people not interested in in, in, in internet companies. When I look at software um, as a service, we use forward EV sales multiples there. And, and now the stocks having, you know, got to levels that we hadn't genuinely seen since the late 90s, we've been quite nervous about and we'd taken a sort of step back and taken money out of that space. Um, the stocks are now trading below five year and, and in some instances below 10 year averages. So again, lots of question marks about what the right numbers are going forward because we're, we're nervous about recession like mm-hmm. the rest of the world is. But optically, the valuation compression in software has been as big as I've seen in in my career, certainly over this time frame. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of semiconductor companies. Um, I, I, I wondered if what your view on the chip cycle is, because it, it has been a very cyclical industry, but there are people that think that now we've got you know, things like um, data centres and the metaverse and VR, that there's just demands. Yeah, I much mean, bigger than it had been. What's your I mean, the you know the, the this time it's different. Being the most expensive phrase <laughs> in, in in investment nomenclature or whatever is uh, is is not lost on us. Um, yes, I, we like the space. Um, we added quite meaningfully to it last year um, as we rotated away from some of those sort of secular growers that had um, really done well during the pandemic and had begun to fall foul of difficult comparisons and reopening and you know a company like a PayPal for example that we owned quite a large position in that we had begun to reduce and then had some challenges we exited that would be a kind of an example of what we sold and on the on the side on the, on the buy side you you position the portfolio more for reopening and our hopes at that time of course were that we would see you know a pretty pretty strong recovery trajectory um and uh, you know the vaccine the, the arrival of vaccines and um, and, and all the good stuff that's actually happened uh, as it relates to the, to the pandemic since those dark days sort of necessitated us to shift the portfolio away from some of the pandemic beneficiaries, work from home, in favour of reopening. And that would you know, take travel assets, for example, Visa, MasterCard, um, as, as ways to pay travel, Airbnb um, is a holding and we've, we added to. But the chip side specifically has typically done very well during periods of you know, stronger economic growth. No, more toasters, mm-hmm. more stuff, but also, like you say, well supported by some really exciting um, secular drivers. So, so we did that trade. We've liked those names for an awful long time, anyway. Um, our view is that um, that there's a few very odd, uh, unusual features to this market that are um, obscuring um, or, or, or maybe desensitising the industry's revenue sensitivity, I should say, to GDP. Um, some of those things are structural, so the growth of EV electric vehicles um, and the amount of semiconductor content you require in one of those vehicles relative mm-hmm. to, a, to a combustion engine. AI. AI is a fascinating development for the industry because if you think about, you know, we, we, we clearly moved from a PC to a smartphone to lots of other, you know, semiconductor content growth. Um, but all of those things are still ultimately connected to humans. You know, we have a phone, we have a PC, and the attach rates are different, of course, from a phone to a PC where we might share share one. Or we may have, I don't know, half per person, but where a smartphone, we might have actually more than one per person. Um, AI sort of breaks the link a little between people and and, and, and semiconductor consumption because you have actually machines working on huge data sets to try and improve 
a whole bunch of different outcomes um, and understand stuff. And and so um, you know the the, the pursuit of things um, like natural language and being able to use these incredible models to do real time translation or visual search. Um, you know, the, 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 right now, you know, the, the likes of Meta or Facebook, um, as it's otherwise known, to try to fill in some of the gaps that changes that Apple have, have, have wrought on its business in terms of being able to identify users and advertise appropriate adverts to those users um, requires the use of massive AI. So um, we, we still really like the space. You know, there's the connectivity story, there's data center growth. Ultimately, we believe that every incremental unit of compute goes to the cloud. And as it does mm-hmm. that, it benefits companies that you know sell into the data center, into those cloud titans. So it's a space that we like a lot. On top of it, very quickly, just to say, there's also this ongoing um, question mark about uh, Taiwan and and what may or may not happen there and Chinese intentions with it. And again, I'm not going to fall into to politics here, but just to say that it's, it's brought up the challenge of what, what's known as Silicon Sovereignty. The idea that, you know, for example, in the US, there's a, an act that's trying to get through Congress to try and improve US manufacturing of chips. And I think, you know, we've also seen that you can't ship a car because you can't find a 50 cent part um, because of this pandemic and some of the the challenges post-pandemic. And as a result of that, everyone's running more inventory in semis than they might have done, you know, for the last 10 years. Some bears would tell you that that was a negative development, i.e. that, you know, that right now demand for chips is slightly divorced from the underlying, you know, fundamental demand for end products but we would argue that you're moving a sort of one-time impact from just in time inventory management to just in case yeah you mentioned taiwan last time we spoke you said you wished you owned more china and that over time you expected the market to become more kind to china (laughs) it shows how difficult investing is what's your view on china now? it it says that you get some things right and some things wrong uh in this business um but again the beauty of having a liquid portfolio and not being too dogmatic as an investor, I think, um, helps. So our view on China, um, yes, I, I guess we probably did. Uh, you know, I think China had a very good first half of, again, I don't live there, so it's easy for me to say that, but um, optically and top down, they had a very good early pandemic. So probably when we spoke, mm-hmm. um, when the rest of the world was you know, locked down and struggling um, with deaths. I mean, like, let's be honest, like, you know, the mortality of the situation was just very dark. Um, and, and much better in China. And since then, of course, it's completely flip-flopped. Um, and, and of course, very recently, just lockdowns in, in, in Shanghai and Shenzhen, it's just not great. Um, massively exacerbating, of course, the inflationary situation we find ourselves in, um, where supply chain challenges are just, you know, just making it very difficult to find a sort of a, a, a healthy equilibrium between demand and supply. But getting back to China specifically, um, not only is the pandemic situation worsened there um, very significantly relative to other parts of the world, but also the regulatory backdrop has been really quite challenging for companies in, in China. Um, it feels to us like um, that may have sort of reached its sort of nadir or mm-hmm. zenith, depending on your, which way you're looking at it. And if that's true, then it might be, start, might be time to start rebuilding some exposure there. And so we've added... Um, very modestly back to Alibaba, which was a stock that we reduced very heavily after the Ant Financial deal was pulled, the IPO was mm-hmm. pulled. That was really the beginning. That was the sort of opening shot, really, of the sort of regulatory scrutiny that became much worse than just regulatory scrutiny and became sort of an all-out attack on um, on, on particularly US-listed, uh, but all really internet giants that the government was sort of um, going after 
in, in, in various degrees. And so, um, so, so the, the in quotes challenge, and it's not necessarily a challenge. We've been adding back to Alibaba. Like I say, we've had some exposure to BYD throughout the pandemic period, which is a um, electric vehicle um, company and has done phenomenally well um, for us as a, as a business, but also as a stock. Um, we've begun to add back there, but I think the challenge is. As a, as again with a risk manager hat on, is it's it's quite difficult to have real comfort in that regulatory environment. Steadying, maybe it steadies and then it lurches lower again. We know that the Chinese economy is having a very tough time. Um, very rare that the U.S. economy grows faster than the Chinese, um, and and so the, the downside risk to Chinese stock earnings numbers. I think is pretty significant, and as we've discussed already, very large parts of the overall tech market are on sale. And they're assets that I can do battle on high ground in relative to, say, China, where even though we have you know Chinese speakers on the team, even though we've been investing in that market forever, um, certainly throughout my tenure at PCT, um, I'm still not as confident that we're doing battle on high ground there as I am when we invest in US software companies. Yeah. Sorry, we're running um, a little bit close to time, but this has been so interesting. I'm going to be naughty and I'm going to run it over a bit. I've got three more questions for you. Come on, then. Um you mentioned cloud computing earlier. Clearly, the cloud's going to be the big winner. You've got Amazon, Google, Microsoft, all have slightly different mm-hmm. um, specialities at the moment. How can investors evaluate between them and pick between them? And I think they, they all, I mean, we like them all. I mean, we've, we've loved this theme really since 2006, seven when we first identified that the cloud, in our humble opinion, was a bit like... Um, the mass production of compute, you know, what was something that was very bespoke before, something that we all did differently in our enterprises could be shifted out to a a mass-produced version of compute where server utilisation was violently different to what it would have been when we managed it in in a kind of cottage industry the way that IT had been delivered pre-cloud. Ever since then, those companies have become enormous companies. And, you know, Amazon, as you said, is the is the um, really the vanguard of, of this industry, created the industry um, through its AWS business that we believe um, uh, accounts for more than half of the overall market cap of Amazon, which explains why we have Amazon in the portfolio. I'll come back to the various position sizes in a second, if I may. On, on Microsoft, uh, brilliant pivot. I mean, again, sort of, you know, tear up the tear up the, the book that says that tech incumbents can't reinvent themselves because Microsoft has. Uh, the pandemic has been an incredible opportunity for them to pivot the business around things like Teams, um, but also Azure, where they've done really, really well as a fast follower and have a very strong second position. Google, more marginal, uh, still losing money, but my goodness, you wouldn't bet against them, um, given the brain power out of, uh, in that company. So we, we own them all. And, and the overall penetration of cloud remains, for, for at least in our opinion, in that sweet spot. So we like them all, but again, they all come with other businesses. So with Amazon, you get exposure to, you know, obviously retail and advertising on that, another way to monetize the retail side of their business. And Google, obviously, most of the businesses is in advertising, in search, uh, YouTube, Um, and then Microsoft, where obviously everyone knows Microsoft, but there's, you know, an office business there too. There's a whole bunch of other really, Know, very large parts of their business that aren't cloud related. So again, we like them all for slightly different reasons. The position sizes in Alphabet and Microsoft are much bigger than our Amazon position um, in the trust because we do build the portfolios against the benchmark or with the benchmark in mind. Both of those names are bigger positions in the benchmark than we currently have. Amazon is not in our benchmark, yeah, which explains why it's smaller. Yeah. Um, it looked to me like you recently built up a position in Snap, which came out with some quite bad news earlier this mm. week, or the share price fell or not, warning about economic headwinds. Um, first part, are you keeping your position in Snap? And the second one, 
you, you mentioned um, e-commerce, but advertising specifically. Do you think this is bad for the tech companies that make a lot from advertising, like Facebook, Google, Amazon? It's certainly a negative development as yeah. it relates to, to, to advertising. I think, um, look, we, we did own some Snap. We didn't, it wasn't a recent purchase. We've owned it um, for, for much of the pandemic. They, they were um, uh, yeah, certainly a beneficiary, like many other social media uh, apps and businesses, from you know, more uh, engagement, more people on the network, people having fun. Uh, during lockdown, um, they they have a unique um, demographic exposure to Gen Z, Gen, Z, Gen Z um, that we like a lot. Um, we don't like the fact that the company gave guidance not much more than a month ago and has now had to come out and negatively pre-announce. And if you look at the mass, I mean, it's a pretty precipitous decline in what they're seeing. So naturally, the market on the day that that news, you know, markdown snapped very meaningfully. We we had actually. For what it's worth, not much, I, I imagine, but we had actually reduced our position into that development because the company had um, issued itself more stock. And Snap is one of those unusual companies that you, you're not only in a founder-led business, but you as an investor have no shareholder rights. Um, it's, a, it's a unique uh, situation as a Snap investor um, that you know, I think um, may come back into focus a bit more if, 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 if the business remains challenged by some of these, these headwinds. The, the frustration isn't just that the company... Uh, so, so we reduced our position because they they had issued themselves share options or RSUs as their name, restricted stock units, mm-hmm. twice uh, this year, which I didn't really like. So I had reduced the position into into the negative development, and then the company hasn't really come out and explained what they've seen. Now, what, what's interesting is that when you um, you know, we've seen we've seen obviously Malaysian retail elsewhere, like at Target, at Amazon, Walmart, all of those businesses are are seeing some weakness at the consumer level, and um, in the case of Snap, you know, some of their um, Direct response advertising units have obviously not performed very well. So, look, we still like the positioning of the company, the the core constituents. I forget the number exactly, but it's sort of 350 million monthly users on this platform. Uh, it's pretty spectacular stuff, and and it, it's a fairly unique, um, you know, user base. So we, we have a small position still in the trust, less than 50 basis points. Mm. And I think really it's a sort of penalty box position now until the company comes out and either improves its execution or um, gives us more colour into what happened. And last question. I I don't mean this snidely, but what skills have you brought to the table over the past six months versus a tracker? Because it, it looked to me like the nav is down slightly more than your benchmark. There are things you can do. You can tell um so yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Um look, we uh we we um we're always disappointed when we trial the benchmark. Um I think that in the end some some managers sort of seek absolute returns. That's not what this trust seeks to do. Um, we like to beat the benchmark. We like to beat most of the peers. We accept that over short periods of time when markets are very strong that we typically aren't in the first quartile of peer group because of the way we construct portfolios. And we equally don't expect to ever be in the worst constituent of port, you know, of managers um, because of the way we build portfolios and sort of an inherent sense of risk actually in, in, in how we build our portfolios against the benchmark specifically yeah it's been a disappointing period for us really not just since november but you know we, we had a really good 2020 uh we had a much tougher 2021 as many of the um as many of the the the, the tailwinds became headwinds people started you know the economy started to reopen and tech stopped being you know the only the only game in town um certainly we we, we our, our core growth focus has been pressured by that reopening trade um and that's continued really post the fed pe- fed pivot and this fred, not not yeah extraordinary let's say extraordinary de-rating in some of the next generation stocks that we've seen what do we bring to the table um 
I think you have to look at anyone's medium term, long term record to, to really be a fair judge of that. And um, you know, what, what we what we ultimately bring is we believe uh, a team of experts that are dedicated to to running this money as stewards of other people's capital. Um, we we hope to be able to give our investors exposure to the core trends that matter. Try and steer clear of the ones that don't. You know, I think the tech sector's growth rate means that if you can stay in it and stay in it and you know over the medium term and avoid some of the you know the the pitfalls the the nonsense stocks the things that invariably come your way as a as a as a tech manager then you can deliver really nice returns for investors over the over the medium term and just what one way one last thing to say on that um you know the index has a, an incredible concentration in some incredible companies um, which is no bad thing. Um, you know, Apple is an incredible business. There's nothing really quite like it. Uh, Google, the same. Microsoft, the same. You know, those companies uh, are, are responsible for a reasonable portion of the amount of our underperformance. I mean, the performance of them has been so much better than the average stock. And I, you know, again, I, I, I don't like underperforming over any time frame, but I think there will be a time where where investors are, are pleased that we've been, been underweight those names. Um, and, and, and we've been able to, over time, demonstrate that there was a day where it was okay to own IBM, for example, and then there was a day where it wasn't. And that will, of course, apply to each, and, each of those three names that we've referenced. And, and the last point I would make, if I may, I know we're short of time, is that, um, you know, if you like, we're, um, as I said, stewards. And so we are, in the end, growth-centric investors. We're not going to flip into value stocks because value stocks are what people want this year. And and so that means that we might underperform if value continues to outperform. Uh, but I think hopefully investors understand that um, and they can find value exposure elsewhere. We really don't think being a value investor in tech is the way to go. But just finally, in 2020, when the portfolio mapped well to what people wanted, what was required during that pandemic, the changes that we made in the portfolio added more than 200 basis points of performance had we just left the portfolio alone from where it stood on you know, December 31, 2019. In 2021, when the portfolio really didn't map to what the market wanted um, as we began to reopen, and uh, we, we added more than 400 basis points from the changes that we made to the portfolio had we just left the portfolio alone from the beginning of the year. Um, it's too early to say what our changes have done this year, but but the idea ultimately is, is that we can... Um, we can we can change slightly at least the way that we the, the the risk reward of the portfolio, but in the end we are growth investors and and therefore somewhat captive to to the performance of those stocks. Ben, that was really insightful. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com